What's up? Episode 11 of the Tartar Project. Thank you, thank you, thank you once again. I know I say this every week, but I genuinely, genuinely appreciate you coming back and tuning in. It means so much to me. This is Phil Toronto. I'm your host. I'm the the team of one, I guess, for Tartar Project. Today we have an awesome guest, as we always do. Every guest is phenomenal. I'm really excited every time that I'm able to sit down with somebody and speak with them. But this week we have Jordan Gaspar of Excel Foods. And it's just a really interesting picture into the co-founding of a venture fund, which I don't think is something that's really talked about or covered a whole lot. You may be working on raising a fund or it's just interesting to find out how some of the inner workings happen. Jordan's super open and honest about how it definitely wasn't always fun and there were some struggles and hurdles, but she and her co-founder got through them and just exactly how they did that. It's really fascinating to listen to and I, I really vibe with her life mantra, which I'll let her talk about uh, later in the episode. But we covered some interesting topics. One was hiring and how Jordan and Excel approach hiring. It's it's unique. I, I like their approach. I think it's really cool. I'm excited for you to hear her tell you all about that. Another piece is dealing with failure head on and how important transparency and communication is with your investor relationship. And that pretty much at the end of the day, one of the only things that you'll have left, whether your business fails, whether things just go completely awry or things are the best, it's your integrity. So that's super important to protect and to manage. And we have a nice discussion around that as well. I could talk about what I liked about the conversation for another 10 to 15 minutes, probably maybe less. I'm not sure, but let's just dive right in and get to Jordan. Here we are. Uh, Tartar Project, I believe before I lose count, it'll probably be embarrassing. Episode 11 uh, with Jordan. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank congratulations for being a guest on the show. Thank you. I I don't actually mean that. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show is what I actually (laughs) mean to be here. Thank you, Jordan is a co-founder of a fund here in New York City, Excel Food. And I'm excited to have foods, foods. I always see the AF, so I never. Oh, that's a fun AF. Yeah, it's a good play. That's really good. Yeah, we get a lot of comments from the business cards. Oh, as you should. Oh my gosh. We have good hats too. Megan will get you a hat. Do you have beanies? Well, no, but we have like these like trucker hats that have AF. Amazing. With the dots on them. I'm in. Yeah, it's good. I'll wear it all around town. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so thank you for coming. Uh, we'll just dive right in. First, actually, could you tell the listeners what Excel Foods is? Yes, we are a venture fund that invests in solely packaged food and beverage brands, um, early stage and emerging growth brands that are all healthy living directed. So we've got 35 portfolio companies, some brands that you might be familiar with, like Four Sigmatic and Koya and Harmless Harvest and Siete Family Foods. Um, And we launched it in January 2014. So it's been a good ride. Hell yeah. That's awesome. And so we're going to take it from there, 2014, but we're going to go way, 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 way back, but actually not that far back because you're not that old. Uh, Just to (laughs) highlight. Do I get to lie about my age? It's not a lie. I'm only only 29. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's, well, that's how we know. We met in college, so it, it was fine. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in New York. Um, so born and raised New Yorker, went to school here, college here, law school here, and now live Just here with my quit. family. Yeah. I left briefly. I, la- I lasted like a year and a half in Nashville, and then I came running home. Oh, a year and a half is a long it time. It was a long time. I committed. I went. I joined a sorority. I really tried to like do the whole you know, sort of college experience yeah. in the South. And then I miss New York. So here I am. And then you came all the way back. And now I'm raising my kids here. Oh, amazing. Just to, it's a legacy thing now at this point. It is, but we defected. So like I grew up uptown and I'm raising my kids downtown. Whoa. So I, I do feel like I'm changing things up a little bit. Is there friction on the holidays? No, it's good. I mean, this makes perfect sense. You know, <laughs> I, I am a downtowner. I've got my business downtown, my kids downtown. So it's good. How big is your radius? Oh, in terms of your good life. Good question. My entire life radius is 10 blocks. Amazing. So my apartment is four blocks from my office and my office is, I guess, only eight blocks from my kid's school. 
perfect. It, it works out well. I yeah. can walk everywhere. That's that's the dream. Yes. Very well architected. It works out well, except for when someone asks me to have a meeting in Midtown. Right. Which or is in complicated. Hudson Yards. I don't mind Hudson Yards because <laughs> it's easy to get here. I, I have a harder time with like the 55th in Madison type area. That's tough. Yes. Just for a whole number of reasons. A but, lot of reasons. Like yeah. I just I feel <laughs> like I feel like it's a good lure to bring them downtown too, because like I always just try to like prime them with snacks and I'll yeah. say, well, come, we'll check out the portfolio, but you know, I'll ply you with some food and beverages and usually it works. I didn't know about the snacks or that, that aspect of your office until I was there for a meeting and I would have booked a meeting way sooner if I had known the like going actual, to Whole Foods. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's honestly, there's pretty much aisles and aisles of snacks and healthy <laughs> snacks, healthy ish snacks. And then there's coolers. And then it's also, it's not just the snacks we invested in. They show up all day. Yeah. So like people just walk into our office and drop them off. It's the best. It's good. It's kind of the dream. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you care about school? Um, yeah, I definitely cared about school. I think I cared about doing well. Um, I wasn't like, uh, miss high school, you know, joining all the teams and doing all that stuff. Um, I, I cared about, um, I think, you know, certain subjects and I, you know, I, I don't know. I think I, I'm, I'm, some people are a better adult. I think I'm a better adult, you know, and you look at, you know, there's people who, you know, they're, they're, they peaked in high school. Like you can tell they had all their friends then they were good at everything. And I definitely think that, uh, I'm a, a better grown up. That's good. It's, that's something to strive for. I think I know. I tell my kids that, you <laughs> yeah. know, so get through this school thing. You'll be okay. Take it seriously. Do well, but who you are in high school isn't going to be who you become. Truly. So. It's great life advice yes. just for everybody listening. If you're in high school, well, a great job listening to podcasts in high school and B, <laughs> get through it. You'll be good. Um, did you have jobs growing up? Were you entrepreneurial? Did you have businesses? All right, so I always loved working. Um, I always loved making my own money. I liked sort of job advancement. So when I was 15, I got my first job. I was working retail in a boutique on Third Avenue. And I would work on uh, Wednesday and Friday afternoons after school and on Saturday and Sunday. And I worked on commission, which was great because every time I got in trouble, my mom would try and take my allowance away. I already like I had no an problem. income. Yeah. I was like, no problem. Yeah. Like I make my own money. Yeah. But I do think that it set me up for a life philosophy of being independent. So I always had jobs, um, lots of different types of jobs, but um, it was definitely a big important thing for me is to be independent. What would you say was your most challenging job that you regretted taking? Oh. I was, okay, when I graduated college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I got a job as an executive assistant. I graduated from Columbia and I literally had not figured out what I was going to do. Um, I got a job as an executive assistant for this adverti advertising exec and she was so mean. Oh gosh. <laughs> and I lasted four days. Oh gosh. And I just, I, I quit. I was like, I can't, this is not what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a bad, it was a really good experience to learn that you have to choose the right culture and the right mentor and the right person to work with and for. Um, but yeah, four days wasn't very long. Yeah. Well, that's my shortest job was probably was one single day and yeah, that what was, was tough. It? I worked in a warehouse, um, pretty much pick and pack for car radiators. And I'm just not cut out for that line of work. And I'm, I'm a you little soft. You only lasted a day. Yeah. yeah a little soft. Yeah. Little soft. <laughs> I guess I'm a little Didn't soft too. I couldn't work for the big ad exec. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Assistant can be a great role unless you have somebody awful and then it's the worst role yeah, of all she time. Has, she has a tough cookie. I hope she's not listening. No, I, probably not. <laughs> she wouldn't, re wouldn't remember me. No. My, my maiden name's different. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent strategy. <laughs> yeah. So in Columbia, how, how was the college experience for you? Did you have fun? Did you have a bunch of friends? Yeah, like no, it was great. Um, I, I became a little bit of a nerd in college. I was the person who was like writing their thesis and um, you know, more involved in sort of activism and things like that. Um, back in New York, my favorite thing is always, you know, the restaurants. And so I spent a lot of time with my high school friends, college friends, you know, just being in the city. Um, but you know, college was, I think still a period of figuring it out. As I said, when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then from there, I ended up meandering into a situation where one of my friends said to me well, after I graduated and started taking this in a new direction after I graduated, why don't you just take like the LSAT with me and we'll see if that opens up some options. And so that's how I decided to take the LSAT. One yeah. of my girlfriends was like, let's just do this. And so 
I took the LSAT and then I ended up scoring well enough that then another one of my friends decided we should just apply to law school. Why the not? friend who took the LSAT with me never ended up applying, but now I'm on to the next friend. Yeah. And so we have, I applied to law school and then I ended up going to law school. The friend who applied to law school did not go to law school. And I ended up going to law school in New York for, you know, obviously the three-year program. But after the first summer, um, people were doing these summer associateships. And a friend of mine was like, we should do that. And so then I did a summer associateship and it was like not planned at all. Um, and I just kept like rolling into my career. And next thing you know, I was a lawyer. And I was sort of like, how did I just default yeah, into being a lawyer? <laughs> like that was not like <laughs> at all what the game plan was. So I practiced corporate law um, in the middle market and private equity. And I was doing leverage buyouts and uh, mostly M&A work and some debt and some securities work. And after, I guess it was four and a half years, you know, it was like the big recession was going on and mm -hmm. all the lawyers were getting fired. And I kept being told I was on partner track. And I just woke up one day and I said, that isn't what I want to do. Right. You know, and I don't want to just keep rolling with my life and not have any purpose in the decision making. And so I joke around that I was the only person who quit their job during the recession. Yeah. <laughs> And probably, <laughs> yeah, no. And, and I said, you know, people are losing their jobs left and right. And I know I'm not committed to being here. And so I would rather you hold that spot for somebody who wants to be a partner, who wants to stay. Um, and so that's how I began my entrepreneurial journey. That's was amazing. I quit my, my legal job in the recession. And my husband was like, what did you just do? Yeah. <laughs> we just bought an apartment. Yeah. <laughs> like, did you give him a heads up? No, we <laughs> talked about it. Good. Yeah. But yeah, I tend to make, I I tend to make decisions, though. <laughs> yeah, that, great, as you should. <laughs> no, yeah. you know, I, I think I said it's time. And he said, really? <laughs> Maybe another year. <laughs> so that that morning after you're no longer employed, what what was it like? What'd you do? All right. So it, it started before then. The day I decided to quit, I like started to cry all the time because I was like, there's so much anxiety about this big life decision that I was going to quit my job and I wasn't going to know what I was going to do. Um, I had lined up with my best friend had graduated culinary school from the Cordon Bleu. And she was looking for a business partner at the time to run her commercial kitchen and do her contracts and run her client management and so she said, will you run the business side of you know my company? It's a catering company and I will you know just run the kitchen and I'll just make food. And so that was my, I said, sure, why not? And so next thing I know, I'm working nights and weekends for like a third of the money that I made as a lawyer. Um, and I'm on the phone talking about hors d'oeuvres all the time with people, which wasn't quite what I envisioned my life to sure. be. Um, but I did get a lot of experience running payroll and, and setting up you know, workers comp and all the insurance and, you know, ended up um, building out a business where we were servicing clients like Ogilvy and uh, Levi's and it was some great corporate clients. Um, and I also got my first experience having a partner um, and just building out a team. You know, we had, you know, events that we would run that we had 50 people that were working at. So I'd never yeah. had that kind of experience. Um, but I did decide ultimately that I wanted to stay involved in the food space, but not in catering. And I ended up getting involved with an organization called Golden Seeds, which invests in women-run companies in tech and consumer and life sciences. And I specifically had been hoping to invest in packaged food and beverage brands because I feel, I figured CPG was more scalable than catering. Definitely. And at the time, uh, there were uh, there was a real strong resistance in the angel community of backing food and beverage brands. It's not like it is now, where people are throwing money into brands it's because the they're thing. Free. Yeah. It's the th it's like the new tech. Back then, there was not really there was no venture climate. There was very limited angel climate. Um, there were very few funds operating in the space. The strategics were largely not operating. They hadn't set up their own venture teams or um, you know real innovation strategies. Um, and so, you know, I approached uh, Golden Seeds and I said, well, you support any company that comes out of ERA or Techstars or Y Combinator. Would you do that if, if there was something like that for food and beverage? And so fast forward a year later, Excel Foods was born and it was originally designed to be Techstars for food and beverage, a national platform that worked with early stage packaged food and beverage companies and that provided them with an ecosystem of what was over a hundred mentors and corporate partners and capital to help them scale more support efficient. that just didn't exist yes, prior the to the founding of Excel um, Foods. Yeah. I, I mean, and so I think that, you know, after that, the corporates, you know, we were very public. We did a lot in the media. Um, you know, we were clever about the marketing uh, and we had all these corporate partnerships that we would announce in the media. So, you know, the UNFI partnership, the Fresh Drag partnership, and it definitely created some buzz. 
Um, we also had 200 people who were formally attached to a landing page when we launched Huge. between the mentors and the limited partners and the brands and the corporates. And so it did create that instant ecosystem. And over the course of the first year, what we realized was there really were features of Excel Foods that could be expanded. And so we used to joke, we built the, the bigger, badder version of Excel Foods from there. And so Amazing. that became the fund um, that we have, you know, just shy of 100 million under management now. And Is that all? So far. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yes. far. <laughs> Hell yeah. You just closed Fund 3 relatively recently. Uh, so we are operating out of Fund 3, um, and we've made several investments um, out of Fund 3, and you know, still going. I love it. Yeah. And we'll take a little bit of a step back because the founding story of Excel Foods is already interesting with how you laid it out, but it's a little bit more intense than I think you have portrayed to date. First off, was Lauren a friend before you no. co-founded the business? No. So we were introduced to do Excel Foods. So she was um, the cousin of a partner in my old law firm. And so we were introduced to sort of two um, you know, sort of go-getter young women who were looking to do something in early stage food and beverage. Um, we, we met in October, 2012. I was eight and a half months pregnant with my second child. And, um, we had, you know, this long meeting and, and planned to meet a week later and I went into labor. <laughs> and so I think, <laughs> that's what, I think that's what you're alluding to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone this story for a long time. Um, I went into labor the night before and I sent Lauren a text message that said, I'm in later labor meeting canceled. See you same place, same time next week. <laughs> and Lauren laughs all the time that I actually showed up, you know, like I, I had, my hair was washed. Yeah. You know, I had had a C-section and she was like really blown away by, by it was my second child. And so badass. It was good. It's pretty badass. It was good. I, just, I, I had to capture that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I didn't know you, you didn't tell me that story. I, I read it in an art, in the entrepreneur article that yeah. came out and I was like, holy shit. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got, you know, it's funny cause it's like at the time it didn't seem like that big a story. And I think that there were so many moments along the way that we did things that we were, you know, we did, we don't, I don't think we ever really felt like we had a choice, but to like drive hard and charge hard. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was, we had no money, we had no resources, we had no relationships. First we were, of its kind type yeah. of fund, like really pioneering Everybody the way. thought we were, I mean, people left and right were like, you guys are going to fail. And we were like, failure's not Thanks. an option. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a different time, you know, and I think that, um, you know, there's an instinct for people to obviously appreciate experience. And particularly in the financial world, people wanted to see a track record. And so it's not common for people to raise capital when they haven't managed capital before. And so right. you know, raising money is a trust game. And it's about, you know, do you have conviction in the managers? Do you have conviction in the entrepreneur? But we learned a lot about um, not only our own business, but what we would look for in other people's businesses through our own experience. You know, we weren't the offshoot of a multi-billion dollar fund. Excel was started out of a dining room apartment, yeah. you know, a dining room table at Lauren's apartment. So, um, you know, we know what to and not say in front of investors, you know, what should the decks look like? What information do people want to see? And it was always like, we were like one year ahead of the brands. Which is great. It's good. That's awesome. Hopefully we're a couple of years ahead now. Yeah. But yeah, you buy time with, with the more experience that you gain. And, and the, the capital. The team. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the capital helps too. Yeah. How big was Excel One? $4.1 million. And that was a huge win. It was a huge win. It was so much money at the time. We were like, oh my God, we've got to write $200,000 checks into companies. Yeah. And we have to negotiate legal agreements with them. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the more interesting part of the story was when we launched, we had set everything up. We had the fund, we had the money, we had four companies we invested in. We got through the first four deals. We had the marketing, we had the website, we had everything done. And all of a sudden, Lauren looked at me and I looked at her and I was like, what are we going to do with them now? Right. <laughs> there was no program. Yeah. Like, we and we over the course of like a couple of weeks were like, shit, like, where are we going to put them? And like, we had to build a calendar and we had to build we built this objective list that had things that they had to accomplish. And it was just it was all building on the go. Did did the objective list work? Was that a good it, framework for you? It did. So it worked really, really well, particularly for early stage companies. Um, and it it actually, I'd say, worked better to teach us about our priorities. Um, and I think it just kind of put some structure around what was a the wild, wild west of an entrepreneur's life cycle. You know, investing in small companies is 
every day, you know, these companies are on the line and there's so much heart and so much passion that goes in, but there's also like these people have invested their, their life savings. You know, they've, they've given up their careers to do this. They have their young kids who they're not able to support financially. And so you really have to have a lot of heart in it at this stage. It's not the same as when you invest in a company that's doing 30 million revenue and they've got their debt facility and working capitals all lined. I mean, everything's sort of like in place you know, it's really is like every moment is is ride or die of they could be out of business or they could succeed. And they feel that for the first couple of years. And so, you know, I always say that investing where we invest is like working with people who have their finger on the or the hand on the panic button at yeah. all time. And just hovering, re- just waiting. Hovering. It's just like, you know, what is it like the, the whammy? Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> like, no whammy, that. no whammy, yeah. no whammy. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's definitely like you have to build up. Um, the the patience and sort of that nurturing side of calming people down when you need to, but also giving them the tough love when you don't, because, you know, sometimes you do need to hit the whammy. Direct feedback. Yes, exactly. This isn't going to work in the way that you portrayed it and you've worked on for months and months. So figure it out. Yeah. And money doesn't grow on trees. Right. Which a lot of people still don't fully realize uh, in this climate, which yes. is difficult. It's going to be an interesting couple of years ahead. Definitely. So. Was there anything that, and this is sort of putting you on the spot, but not as dramatically, um, was there anything that you took away from fund one that going into fund two, you're like, we definitely can't do this or we absolutely have to do this with fund two? We absolutely have to invest in the weird ones is what we call them. Um, We have to stay innovative and invest in companies like Four Sigmatic, which is really what built our pipeline of like, we have to take those risks. We have to be willing to support innovation, even if it doesn't seem like it has a place, because it isn't about what it is at the time we meet the company. It's about what it can become. And so we look at those early years and we say, um, had we not been willing to take a risk on mushrooms, we wouldn't have ended up in functional coffee. Right. Um, Chris Hunter from Koya was another great example. You know, we were early in in fresh plant protein drinks. Um, they, the company was really just, you know, getting off the ground. They were executing on a whole foods exclusive in the first year. And it had been a little bit of a rocky year before getting in market. And, you know, I think that a lot of investors at the time said, yeah, we like the brand, we like the opportunity, but the company's sub half a million in revenue in a beverage business. And I look back now and I think that, you know, taking that risk early on cemented our role, you know, before the other funds came in, but it also established a partnership where we were there in the beginning. Um, and, and so the, you know, the, the team knew that, um, what not to do, um, do not raise a $4 million fund. Okay. There are no fees to cover overhead, right? Like basic things like legal and accounting and DNO, like it, it's a tough model. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, it's, I was always important to understand your check size, um, commiserate with the role in the company. Um, and so it's something we're really aware of, you know, where we've done a really good job learning from is, is how much are we putting in, in relation to other people and what are the expectations on us vis-a-vis the co-invest group? And yeah. I think early on, it took a little time to figure out sort of our station on the cap table. Um, but we've got a lot better at that. Yeah. And especially as you grow and grow in check size as well, just because that definitely catapults you into a different stratosphere with Excel three, since it's, it's the big one. Yeah. I mean, so Excel three, no, for now, but so Excel three, you know, whereas we used to cut $50,000 checks. Now we go up to 6 million direct, you know, the rounds swell from a million up to the most recent one was a $90 million financing that so when we partnered with a big fund, you know, that we work with that we're, um, really close to. And I think that, um, it definitely does change, you know, for, but our, our heritage is in creating value. And I, you know, I used to say that when you're cutting a $50,000 check, you better do something good for it because it's like your money's not exactly making a dent. Exactly. And so we definitely learned in our model to be helpful um, and to prioritize the value that went into the companies as well. Amazing. So when you, we'll jump around a little bit, when you're in a pitch, is there one bit of a story that you listen for specifically? Is it the founder journey about how they got to the problem that they're solving? Is it all about the brand and the design of the product? What What's a good grabber for you? So it's funny because I, I know that there are a lot of investors who are looking for the founding story and the passion. 
that's what drives them because they feel like if you find passion in an entrepreneur, that will transcend any obstacle. I do think that you want to invest in people with drive and with passion. Um, you know, likewise, I think that there are people who focus on product or they focus on brand or they focus on market opportunity. And those have to be there too. But for me, one of the things, and it may be just specific to me that I look for is instinct and it's reading the room well. And I don't know if that's something that people talk about a lot, but it's knowing when to talk about product, when to talk about opportunity, when to focus on brand, when to be open-minded about brand. It's to tell a defined, passionate story about your founding, but it's also to make sure that if you get 29 minutes or 59 minutes in front of an investor, get the whole story out and leave time for questions and know your numbers and know your data and make sure that you're you're providing the, the full experience because you may only get that opportunity. And what I often find is that founders who are so passionate and so excited sometimes spend 25 of 30 minutes talking about their founding story before they lift their head up and say, hey, do you have any questions? And by the way, I haven't even gotten into the numbers. Yeah, it's not an automatic. I'm going to get on a call again. Right. That's right. I, you know, so there's we all Time's have valuable. We all have our our, um, you know, sort of our own schedules and we all have a lot of priorities. And so take advantage and, and sort of make the most of those conversations. And if you lead with your instincts of reading the room, you'll know if you're going in the right direction and the person who's there is getting what they need in terms of like their own evaluation. I think that that's the most eloquent way and explanation of when I try and say a founder just has it that everything yeah. that you just described is it. And I am going to steal that from you. Yeah, but, but you have to footnote me. I will absolutely footnote Every you. Every time. Yes, this 100%. It's going to be amazing. It's going to keep going. Yes. It, it's going to be Jordan <laughs> AF. And that's that's going to be it. Maybe comma, maybe not. You'll be wearing my hat. Definitely. Trucker hat for the days. <laughs> when you are evaluating a founder's able to read the room, they have it. That's great. But are you are you driven by trends in the market? At all? So it's it's a hard question because we used to invest in a stage of company that is that existed before the data existed. So there was no mushroom coffee market, you know. And um, I'd say that you know we were investing in trends or helping to create trends, um, you know, before they really existed. Now, you know, investing a little bit later, we're able to see the data and see what's performing and evaluate the market opportunity a little bit more. Um, I think that there's a balance. You don't want to get too tied to the data such that you're chasing, you know, that one or two or third slot in functional beverage. Like that is certainly the place you want to be in terms of finding great companies. But, you know, in our stage investing, like I want to get to them right before they become that company. Right. And so, you know, I think it's it depends on your check size. It depends on your skill set and your toolbox. But for Excel Foods, we really want to find companies just as they're about to sweep onto the data. And so like I look at Alpha Foods and we, during our investment process, we met the company in October or September of last year, and we were going through the investment process while they were launching nationally Wow! with Walmart, Kroger, Target, I mean, every major retailer. And so the data hadn't hit. And so there was there's a risk associated with that. You have to believe that you've got a founder with it Right. And yep. in that case, there's two. Um, you have to believe it's the right time in the market, the right opportunity. But we were also super impressed that with a plant protein platform, that conventional mass flew right in quickly to get behind that type of opportunity. Um, and so, you know, we, I'd say, came in alongside the data, but in what was going to be a pretty validated market. And since it is June 2019, are there any bubbling trends that you're keeping an eye on that aren't going to spill trade secrets for where Excel's looking to invest next? But anything in particular that you just have a personal or professional yeah. passion around? So we just invested a couple months ago in Roar Organic, um, which is a female-directed electrolyte infusion beverage. Delicious beverage. Delicious beverage. Um, and the entire marketing plan, it revolves around female empowerment for young girls. So it's right on time coming in at it, you know, and the incumbents really don't have permission to do that in the same way. Um, so I think that there's, we are, you know, from a personal perspective, clearly we support, you know, the sort of the, the female advancement initiatives that have happened in the past year or two. 
Um, and we are investing into products that are positioned for a market that we feel like hasn't been properly addressed, right. um, which is young women, um, you know, sort of that Gen Z digitally native population as well and demographic and then hustler moms or, you know, millennial moms. Um, so there's sort of that that group of women. Um, I'd say that as an adjacency to that, we're seeing more and more focus of products launching geared towards health and wellness for women's bodies, whether it's in supplements or in prenatal care and things like that. And so we're figuring out, you know, how do we want to be involved in, you know, more of a tangible health benefit to women too. Um, we are particularly focused on kids platforms. Um, you know, my partner and I have four kids ages eight and so eight, six and almost four and almost two, you know, and so for us, you know, we think that there's a lot of opportunity in kids snacking. Um, we've invested in kids meal solutions and in kids beverages, but we think that we're going to keep diving into the kids format and family directed brands. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of functional beverages, which is great. We're big believers in grain free, you know, with the Siete Family Foods investment and the Susie's investment. You know, we've gone into the snack format as well as also into the baked goods format. Um, and we think that there's going to continue to be evolution in baked goods. Um, people aren't going to be giving up their muffins. They're just going to be looking for something better for you. Get me a better muffin. Yeah, get you a Susie's. We got we to <laughs> give you Susie's and a trucker hat. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of stuck on Siete chips because the second <laughs> the bag's open, I might as well just dump out Is it can the contents. The whole yeah, thing. it's gone. Well, they finally that have their, their, salsa, their just, mini oh. format. I, I have no time for the mini. I need the full thing. <laughs> and have you had it with the queso? Yes. Okay. Did, did you just take down the whole jar? Just, yeah. Well, not, not in one sitting, What about thankfully. the taco chips? I didn't have the taco chips. Oh, you can have a taco too. Like, like an old school hard taco. Huh. Uh-huh. Well, back to Whole Foods I go. I know. Exactly. <laughs> Some hot sauce. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm obsessed with chips and dip and Siete makes phenomenal chips and dip. And I also have to try the tacos and they, they have a soft taco shell as well. Yeah. They've got fresh tortillas, um, that, uh, are, uh, cashew based, almond based and cassava based. And then we've got, uh, hard tortillas as well, like in the shell. It's going to be a great weekend coming up. Yeah. <laughs> going to have a nice little expensive party. weekend. That's great too. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's what it is. It's fine. Hopefully there's a coupon I mean, code no, for Prime. I buy so much of it at a time. Like you don't, I don't just buy one bag. I'll no. buy like four bags of chips and three quesos. And it's the right foresight. I take the same approach. Yeah. When, when I host a party, that's like a taco party. Like I commit to like a Siete party. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. It's themed. Good. I love themes. Yes. And we wear the merch, you know, we're like wearing like the hats <laughs> and the, the sweatshirts. So that's perfect. Yeah. That, that's why they want you on the cap table. I, well, we're very happy on that cap table too. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to jump back a little bit to something you touched on around fun one, uh, where it was too small. You did what you had to do, but the fact of fees and that the fee aspect and how to run your business. And I know your kids, all four kids are on the advisory board. They're very cheap employees, but how did you overcome the lack of fee structure? And just before I know, I just kicked you a question to answer to fill in any listeners that aren't familiar with the venture capital model. Uh, pretty much the only way that you can pay employees and yourself and cover your overhead is through fees. And there are various different structures and what have you. There's, X percent of the amount of money that you raise that's dedicated to your fees. There's a standard, it varies, it's whatever, but that's all you get to pay your staff and your employees. And as you can imagine, X and it's a single digit percentage, one to two to two and a half percent. So apply that to 4.1 million. There's a little bit of a gap between <laughs> anything that you would want to do. So so how'd you overcome that? Yeah. So an accelerator luckily doesn't have to run off of a two and twenty. There Amazing. is accelerator expense ratios, which does have a higher level of fees. And so we did charge um, a slightly higher management fee, though it's still translated to a single digit. It's tight. Yeah, it was tight. It was really tight. Um, so like any other small business, you know, nobody got paid anything. You know, people made nominal salaries to be able to, I don't even want to say keep the lights on, just I'd say to justify going to work for the first two years. Right. Um, in my case, I joked to my nanny made much more money than me. I had to like make a contribution to her. Um, you know, and then you, know, you have, we had very supportive spouses and families, all of us who were involved with it. Um, you know, the biggest challenge I think we had was when we built Excel one, we had no idea that we would travel. 
it was like, it didn't even cross our mind to have a travel budget. And, you know, we're sitting here and, and across from us is Megan, who's my wonderful friend and, and partner in crime who books travel all day long. Cause I'm on the road every week. Yeah. And so, you know, it's an amazing thing to think that, you know, we had really hard decisions we had to make in that first year where we were invited to go to general mills headquarters and Costco headquarters, and we had no way to pay for it. And so we were like, Oh, like, do we not go? You know, right. what do we like? Of course we go. Yeah, like, you have, have, to, have go. to go. We have to <laughs> yeah. go. So I'll never forget. Delta we doesn't take IOUs no, no, either. No, it's weird. <laughs> we we took a three hour red eye from Seattle to Minneapolis Oof. one night. Um, it was a really cheap flight, and I think there was like cardboard on the wing covering up the name. Um, and Just it was really instilling confidence. Totally, in your but that way we didn't have to pay for a hotel. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the cheapest flight possible and we got to hit both headquarters. And so that was the biggest thing that we learned is like building a budget is really, really hard when you're starting a company and we were starting our own company. And so, you know, you really do need to factor in kind of those major buckets, you know, that everybody puts in a typical P&L, but you also need the emergency sort of cash reserve. Even within that, we had that, it still did not cover it. Yeah. So, um, I'd say that, uh, you know, we got a crash course in how to be frugal and scrappy. Um, I think they gave us a true appreciation for the budgets that the brands have, but it also gave us a little bit of leverage in our conversations where they all knew that we were doing that. Yeah. So it wasn't like they were watching it themselves in action. Um, and I think that they had a respect themselves for that. Most of them had bigger budgets than we did. That's amazing. It was scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so see what I do. I don't know. Actually, I was trying to think of the saying. I can't think of the saying. Oh, no, we definitely ha- we had much smaller budgets than most of the brands in that first year. That's the best. Yeah. It's the best now that that's not the case. But great. When you were hiring for a fund, were were there any differences between when you were hiring in the past? I know you had the catering business with experience and everything, but was there a different mindset to hiring the first employees at Excel? So We've never hired like a traditional fund. Um, we have hired four of our interns and developed them in our own farm system. And I think that one thing we learned is that we really work better with people that we spend time with and that we choose to work with, not necessarily based on the skills they acquired somewhere else, but how we could train them internally and also how you know we all fit together. Uh, we're just now hiring more externally. And we brought a GC in last year and um, we're bringing in a, a new person now. And I, I think it's it's an exciting thing to, to evolve those practices. But I do think that our heritage is a little bit more of finding people who are passionate and excited who want to be there because they tend to you know, be really committed and engaging. And I think that when you're, we, we found that, you know, like any other business, if somebody's looking for jobs at a fund, it's this fund, that fund, that fund. They're just looking for the best job they get. But people who we were promoting internally had come to us because they wanted to work with us, which was a little bit different. Yeah. And it's a great just cosign of the brand that you've built. It's nice and flattering to have people want to be an intern and work for free and just believe in your mission. And that's probably exciting. It is. But, you know, every member of Excel Foods is incentivized with Carrie from day one. That's, and that's been, super unique. It's very unusual. It's the equivalent of a brand giving options out, you know, to every employee, regardless of the role they have. And so I think that philosophically, we wanted to make the statement that everybody was sharing in the upside and the ownership of Excel Foods and that the priorities were aligned, that we were all thinking about our compensation from not just a current comp, but a long term opportunity. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Um, so Jumping over to about to make an investment decision, what's what's the Excel process? Like, is it a few meetings? Is there a set partner meeting? Or you could say pass and it's proprietary. No, no, it's, no it's not. It's, it's a good question. So um, we've made investments that we've known the companies for two years. We've made investments we've known the companies for two weeks. Um, each each company is has a different process. Um, each transaction is different. You know, the core, you know, sort of consistent thing in our process is, yes, we will meet with you um, many times, you know, and it's either quickly over a short period of time or longer over a period of time. Um, We will we do full blown diligence, you know, much more aggressively than most funds. 
Um, and that's for legal diligence, you know, accounting diligence, financial diligence. But now as we're working with bigger companies, we're doing the supply chain diligence. And so, you know, a fund of our size typically doesn't go to those lengths. Um, you know, I'd say that imagine like a, um, a mini private equity deal is what we're doing. Um, such that, you know, our co-investors definitely know that if we're coming in, they sort of smile and they well, somebody say, will do the work. That's good. They, they say like, <laughs> all right, just let us know if you come up with anything <laughs> intelligence. Famous. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, um, but you know, and, and we step up our diligence every year as our check steps up, you know, our LPs co-invest alongside of us. Um, you know, we have a unique, unique model. They co-invest fee-free, carry-free. And so it's a big part of our, our partnership with them that they can trust us in diligence. And so we take it really seriously that, you know, they know that we're putting that legwork in. Um, and so, you know, we're going to do it regardless. Um, I also think that it doesn't mean that we don't close over findings. What we usually say is it gives us a nice list to work off of post-close to better the company together and to clean up things that we came across. You know, occasionally, obviously, there are things you say we can't close until this gets sorted out. Um, of but, course. Yeah. But, you know, you, you figure out where are you in your trademarks, your supply chain documentation, you know, where are you with the employment documents? Um, you know, is the cap table prime and ready to scale um, and thinking through things like that. Is there just to jump off that? Is there a red flag or a yellow flag that it's not malicious on the company side, but they just don't realize that they have to do X or they have to do Y? That is a common theme that comes up during diligence or you'll usually are met with a blank stare if you bring it up like have you thought about doing x so so there's no one thing but i will say that there is a code of conduct in raising money and that's something that not every entrepreneur realizes um it's okay to shop a deal to shop a term sheet you just need to be upfront about it like you have to actually be candid with people and say this is what i'm looking for these are my goals for the round these are the rights i want to give and give people an opportunity to meet your expectations or not I think that, um, you know, every so often you come across an entrepreneur who doesn't realize that it, all you have is really your transparency and your reputation. And investors do remember when the transactions go awry because things are not above board. And that's the only thing that'll crush you yep. is, you know, you can make mistakes, you can not hit plan. You can have a product that fails in the market. You can have bad team members. But if you don't have integrity or if people don't have confidence in the honesty of your process, they won't back you and because they won't risk it. And it's not worth making 100 times your money if you're not in business with someone that you trust. Right. It's not a good feeling to not feel 100 percent confident in your relationship with the founder as an investor. Just yeah. it's I totally agree with you. It's not worth it. And money is is whatever. It's just waking up and feeling good about what you're doing and putting out in the world and who you're working with. I feel like that's so important. And it is, it's a relationship, you know, it's, it's, you want to feel good about the partnership and the working relationship, but you also, you want to feel like you've backed people that you're supporting and validating and engaging with that make you proud. Definitely. You know, investing early is, you know, like having a young family. You know, and so it's it's a little bit different. You know, sometimes we see the later stage investors, they they see one that's like flying fast and furious and they want to land on they want to land the ship. And I so get that. And I think that of course it's super exciting, but for at our stage, there's a lot of bumps in the road ahead. And I don't think it's just about winning the term sheet war. I think it's gonna be a long process and it's one that we're gonna to wanna to be there for, you know, many, many stages of the company. Definitely. And I'm I'm glad you touched on this. It's around failure and transparency around failure. And this is obviously not binding by any means, but I'm more inclined to invest in a founder that's failed previously and lost our money as long as they've been upfront about the process and kept us in the loop along the way. And it wasn't an email 24 hours before they went bankrupt or announced that they were closing, that we found out about it and they tried to work through it. Do you do you agree with that mindset where it's it's all about transparency and obviously you're not going to blindly fund something, but they have a better shot. And I, what I'm trying to get at is most people, not necessarily just entrepreneurs, are terrified of failure and feel like that's the kiss of death. And it's it's just not the case. And it's all about how you handle it. And I think that you really touched upon that by saying the importance of your integrity and your word. 
Um, so I guess that's just a long-winded way to not really ask a question and just see no, but if I you, can, I, no, <laughs> you, I, no, you agree. I'll, I'll add you know, a statement. I mean, I think it's also managing your investors during bad times is just as much an indication of what kind of founder you are and what kind of leader you are. And so um, everybody thinks that they're a transparent, honest person. Let's just start there. Like mm-hmm. nobody wakes up and they're like, I'm duplicitous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I know what I'm going to hide today. I know what I'm going to hide today. Like that just doesn't happen. But then you go into what are the shades of gray? Because everybody can also find ways to justify any of their own actions. And so what I'd say is, is if you set up guardrails with your investors early on in the relationship, you will never be in a shade of gray that goes too dark. And for me, I always find there's a couple watches. Do not run silo conversations with your investor base. If you have two or three major investors, keep them in the room at the same time. Don't try and win them over in silos and give them a different version of it so that by the time it comes to the, I mean, I totally get socializing challenges or socializing new initiatives, but there's a difference between, like there, there is a line where it's clear you've just tried to generate your support outside of the group dynamic of the board. Um, I think that uh, if you are going to fail and you have, you have the ability to restructure around things, offer people the opportunity to, to not be partners. You know, if you're out of capital, you're out of business, you're out of business. Like wind down gracefully, make people have confidence that, you know, every, all the bills will be paid, all of the, you know, sort of the accounting measures will be taken, the returns will be filed, like give them that confidence that you, you're going to you know, button things up. But to the extent that you are going to pivot, which is that that wonderful word that tech investors use that CPG investors don't use, if you're going to make changes in the business, it's an opportunity for you to say, these are the options available to you. Let people have their own option um, because it'll allow people to say, yes, I stay on this train. I'm happy to be here or no, I've made the decision to get off. Um, I think that it gets a little bit more complicated when founders are failing and they sort of either they let things fall apart and in a disorganized way and all of a sudden everybody's trying to scramble to figure that out or they do so in a way that locks people in and they don't want to be there right which is a i mean nobody wants to be in a relationship with anybody they don't want you know when they don't want to be there yeah it's contentious it's wildly unpleasant <laughs> and, and a lot of times you'll find that investors will just want out you know, just to part ways and so you may have a better outcome for the company if you sit down and say what are the solutions to sort of Make some changes. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely great advice. What uh, what are you most excited about with the rest of 2019? And it doesn't necessarily yeah, have no. to be okay. investing. Okay, so I'm things, super but... excited. I'm going to be working remotely this summer with Amazing. my kids. I've been on the road, and so you know, the summertime for me is always a time I put my kids in camp, and I get to really be grounded and spend time. And I work remotely. And anybody who wants to book a meeting with me actually gets an email saying, I'm sorry, I'm not in the office for this period of time. We can book calls or we can push a meeting until the end of the year. Oh, sorry, the end of the summer. And I had started that practice six years ago, even when we were small and if we've kept it. And I, I definitely find that it gives me a little bit of a reset. Nobody thinks that I'm not going to be there and be available, but it does give me the time where I, I actually create that boundary for my family. Um, and it also means I'm not flying, yeah. which is great. Work-life balance. Yes. So um, I'm excited about that. Um, I'm super excited about all the places this fund is going, you know, and how we're growing. I mean, we've been growing so quickly ourselves. So um, each uh, summer there's like a, a new challenge and, and exciting thing happening at Excel Foods. I think two years ago we got our first office that we signed a lease. That was super exciting. I think last year we hired a bunch of team members all at once. We I think we hired three team members. I remember the press release. It was just oh, like, so everybody joined Excel Foods this week. It's amazing. We had a really exciting week. We yeah. hired somebody yeah. and let alone three people. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, with this next stage, we're looking forward to some of our bigger companies kind of going in the next phase themselves and finding their own partners. Um I don't know. I think that we're like we're we're right now in the beginning of our next phase. You know, we're growing so quickly and I think that we're meeting so many great companies, but it's giving us an opportunity to say, well, how else could we apply our resources? You know, and we've gone up to working with larger companies. Are there different types of companies that we could work with that we haven't before? So we're early on thinking about like, you know, are there adjacent verticals we could be in? You yeah. know, that have uh, a relationship with food and beverage, but maybe are a little bit outside our typical scope. And just expand the ecosystem. Yes. I love that. 
two questions before I let you go. The first one is, do you have a life motto or mantra that you kind of use as a guiding light or that has helped you through tough times or positive times? Um, I have a post-it on my desk that no one in the office has ever seen. And it's underneath my computer and it says, be purposeful. Amazing. And I think that it's been something that I've thought a lot about in the past couple of years is always to be purposeful in my relationship building, in be purposeful in how I treat people and how I manage my family, how I manage, you know, the, the team that we work with. Um, I don't know if people are always thinking about what's the broader sort of purpose that, of why they're doing things. And I think that if you feel, if you're constantly keeping that in mind of, of, you know, what's the goal, you know, then you're meeting your own needs and you're also addressing the needs of the people around you better. Um, so yeah, be purposeful. I love that. That's amazing. And then now it's, you know, on the post-it. Now people are going to see it, but see it's it. okay. <laughs> it's been a secret till now. Yeah. Only you I, know. I Hold appreciate it. Just you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Guys, don't tell anybody. Where can people find you and Excel? Where where should people go? Um, well, you can find ExcelFoods.com. Um, you can reach out to me at Jordan at ExcelFoods.com or at info at ExcelFoods.com is where you know, a lot of people kind of reach out to, um, but I'm here. So, you know, come check in. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. That was fun. Thank you again for listening. Jordan, thank you for coming on. We covered a lot. We definitely covered a lot. And we, we usually do. I mean, it's a long conversation no matter what. And it's really fun start to finish. But two things I really would love for you to take away. Just again, I mentioned it at the intro to the episode. The importance of communication and transparency when you're running your business and building your brand. It's so, 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 so important. Investors, advisors, team members, you're all on the same team and no one is ever going to be upset that you're over communicating about asking for help or about what's going on with the business itself. So it's so important to just be open and transparent within reason, of course, around what's going on and, and, and what your needs are. So please, please, please take that away. If you like today's episode, it would mean the world to me if you told your friends about it, if you shared it out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, tag me if you'd like, Phil Toronto, Tartar Project, what have you. I really appreciate it. Follow me on Spotify. That would be great. Find the Tartar Project there. Maybe throw it on a playlist. I don't know. That'd be dope. Five stars, iTunes. Really appreciate it. It's really the only way that I can grow is if you tell people about what we're doing here and it would just mean the world to me. And I'm so, so, so thankful that you're here and are listening to me ask you to do so because I really appreciate the fact that you listen and you subscribe. So thank you so much and I'll catch you next Tuesday.